Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 37. Our look at cirrhosis patients and their needs. Cirrhosis patients have long been a special focus for this podcast due to the fact that they are the most imperiled of all NASH patients and have the shortest time to decompensation and other severe health events. This conversation picks up on the issue of patient communication and care. I start by asking whether the issue is completely a function of patient-centered human systems issues or whether better diagnostics and drugs might motivate providers to identify and follow up patients more aggressively. The ensuing conversation suggests that both are important, but at least in the short term, the human systems issues may be at an easier place to have impact if these systems can be designed and executed and if payers are willing to fund them. Even though funding is less expensive than drugs and diagnostics, this money is frequently harder for providers or institutions or nursing services to get a hold of. In the absence of new drugs, this conversation focuses on the pincer movement of improving patient communication and engagement on one flank and producing superior disease models liquid biomarkers and new drugs on the other. The interplay of the two sets of needs creates an interesting dynamic in its own right. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. What we're going to be talking about today is cirrhosis. We had an episode last summer on cirrhosis that was extremely well received. We've come back to it a couple of times since then with different casts of characters. And there was a cirrhosis late breaker with semaglutide at ILC a couple of weeks ago, which Jorn is an author. And one of the many one-on-one conversations Lars and I have had that for technical reasons have not made it onto this program was actually about some of the things that he is doing and, and, and they are developing to study and evaluate cirrhosis. So I think this should be a fascinating conversation. And I'm excited to listen. Louise and I have decided we know how to ask questions, and that's probably all we need to do. So, Louise, is is that entirely a human systems issue, do you think? Or would better technology or better diagnostics help motivate either the treating providers to be more aggressive in dealing with patients or patients to hear something and, and respond more favorably. Louise Campbell. If you can get your patients into the service because the letters go out, the appropriate information is given and you can engage, then they will buy into absolutely everything that helps them. But I don't think it's a UK system problem. I think it, when I worked in Australia, it was slightly better. It's where we invest in infrastructure There are lots of issues in hospitals and health providers where the infrastructure is the weakness, not the technologies, not our ability to design trials with all of the infrastructure supported. But it's when we try and roll it out and patients, uh, like Jean was saying, they, they get lost in the system or they don't understand it. But it's not because for the majority of them, it comes from their problems. It's the fact that the systems don't necessarily all work properly. We forget those basic things we expect to be perfect aren't but patients really do want this new technology they want to feel better and I think one of the measurements that we can use when we look at these groups of patients is how they feel how they function how they survive is it improving as we stabilize their disease and those outcomes are really really important to patients they've said time after time we want to be stabilized we want to feel better not feeling worse is an outcome and they will go to the ends of the earth to get that and they will provide their data they give their biopsy tissues they're really really engaged looking at the fundamentals of how our systems in all areas work together is a potential 
benefit to getting better outcomes and retaining patients and also locating the right patients. So, Jorn, it strikes me listening to Louise and to Lars that we're almost talking about technology as a pincer movement, that on one flank, you've got the kinds of things that Lars is doing and that Scott and you were talking about uh, two weeks ago that are very, very high-end technologies at getting a much better understanding of exactly where intervention needs to be and what interventions help you. And then at the other end, you've got the kinds of things that you and, and Jeff put the meeting in Barcelona together to do and that John Dillon talked about and Louise talks about all the time, which is if we have all that technology in place and we can do a brilliantly good job of identifying the patients who are most at risk, we then have to communicate that information to the people who are treating them in a way that the people who are treating them are motivated. And we've got to communicate the information to the patients in the way that the patient is motivated to react. Those feel to me, the way we're talking about it today and frequently do, like two completely different processes. Is that how it feels to you too? Or do you see a point of intersection between them or, or points of intersection? Jaren Schattenberg. I agree that there is a big disparity of the technology, the state-of-the-art technology that is available in high-end technologies in science and clinical trials versus the way we set up clinics. I mean, I, I do get mails sometimes that, you know, our phone line is all jammed that they can't get through to, her, uh, to schedule an appointment. And, and you'd always think, you know, how, how can that be? There's a person concerned about liver health and they don't seem to come through uh, over a phone line. In the end, they give up and, and don't come to our clinic. So um, reflecting on that, I think there's certain limitations in, in everyday clinical care where uh, you cannot apply these type of high-end technologies. And it would be so important, as Louise rightfully said, to empower the patient and give them the information to do something and change something for them. Because this is also going to be at a much lower price in the end if they change lifestyle, they know where they are, are going to benefit the system. So I think we should invest on certain healthcare structures here, yes, to improve that. On the other hand, end of the spectrum, I do think we need technology advances. It's very different in, in systems across Europe even. I would have thought that in the UK, you have a certain referral system that's somewhat automated and it might support, but uh, for example, in my clinical system, it would need an active, either the patient asking for a referral and uh, reminding his physicians to finally refer him or somebody to, to do so um, based on a test that he thinks this is uh, needed for. So there's lots of avenues to improve everyday clinical care for these patients. And then, on Lars, I'm thinking that if you go out to the other end of the spectrum where you live, that advances are significant and considerable and being made on an ongoing basis. They translate well into drug development. I'm not sure I understand how they might over time translate into patient care because it isn't something we touch on a lot when you and I talk. But I'm wondering what thoughts you might have about that. Lars Johansson. I, I think the way it translates into patient care is that you actually may make the right decisions on what drugs to advance and not early on because we better understand if the drugs have the effect that we think they have, if they turn down cell selectivity, if they have antifibrotic effects. And if we can see that early, we will not be wasting time trying to develop the wrong drugs. And also, you know, exposing patients to something which we could have known didn't work. Uh, so I think that's that's how these advanced uh, technologies translate. But moving into the clinical practice, it has to be simple and affordable. Coming back again to my background in Athro, 20 years ago, when I was with AstraZeneca, we did a huge study trying to get acceptance for APU A1B instead of LDL. And, you know, people suddenly, they were they were used to LDL being like bad cholesterol. And this was a fantastic study showing improved risk prediction and everything. But it just couldn't transform because it was just, we don't want another, people understood what LDL meant. High LDL is bad for you. So even though the risk prediction was better and everything, in the end, it didn't fly. Simply 
simply because it's such an enormous task to educate the population. That's something to keep in mind here. It has to be simple and, and affordable and still do the job. So Quentin Anstey always talks about not loving the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think that's kind of what I hear you commenting on. Yeah, no, if it's good and it translates, that's what we need. These fancy techniques that I'm working with will help us make the right decisions in drug development, but it's not, I think, for the masses. <laughs> so for the non-masses or for the people who worry about the masses, I think one of the things our audience would like to know are one or two things that you're working on right now that you believe will be extremely promising in terms of pushing the frontier in terms of knowledge around, as you point out, doing better drug development faster or having a greater understanding of the disease. Tell us about a couple of things you're working on right now, please, that you think have the potential to do that. Well, I think one of these is obviously the comorbidities we see in, in cirrhosis. But also, I think that, that just the ability and where we, we start to, we're running trials where we, we know a lot of cirrhosis patients actually end up with renal events. So we, we look into what is happening in the same studies as we investigate the liver, we investigate the kidney, or we investigate the heart. Uh, you know, the, the, the HEF-PEF uh, situation in NASH patients is, is quite, uh, it's well known, it's there. So I, I think to me, it's really a race. I mean, it could be manifested in the liver, but it could also have endpoints in the heart or in the kidneys. And I, I think we can do a much better job in understanding a more holistic view here than, than we have in the past. And that's, I think, where we right now spend a lot of time on looking a little broader outside the liver, but in NASH patients, also muscle, etc. So here comes my question to Lars, if I may, Roger. There's a lot of imaging studies or imaging tests ordered in clinic uh, every day, MR and CT. And my question is, from the technology side you're looking at, is there anything that we can do to transform these standard imagings that are being done for, let's say, back pain or something to actually identify patients with suspected advanced liver disease? You know, just by having the sequence run and CT might be more suitable because you have a more broader overview without needing a specific sequence. But, you know, it's a simple thing like nodularity of the liver and to describe that and train radiologists to do so. Now, I completely agree with you, Jörn, and that's actually, we're right now running, a, I think, a very interesting project. It's a population-based study where we did liver CT in 30,000 Swedes and we collect outcome and we measure liver fat, but also all these other things and using AI-based tool. So you can deploy it into any CT where you have a piece of the liver involved. Uh, so there's some work ongoing in this direction. And I, must, I agree with you. I think CT is better suited. It's worse suited from a technical perspective because it doesn't contain as much information as MRI, but it's done on a much larger scale and it's much simpler. So I completely agree with you, Jörn. I think there is definitely room for uh, improvements there that you just send your test and say, this is a high risk patient with high risk of liver disease. And I think CT would probably be the easiest way or the best way to go. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, July 27th. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.